This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Therese Pandel. Therese is a healthcare executive with over 35 years of progressive leadership in large, complex healthcare systems. Successful record of achievement in building integrated systems of care, advancing physician alignment, improving clinical delivery systems, as well as developing successful risk-based payment models, she has led strategic growth initiatives, including multiple physician integration initiatives, alignment of independent hospitals, development of a provider-sponsored health plan, as well as service line expansions. Operationally, Therese drove a division structure to reduce redundancies, increase efficiencies, and reduce costs across the continuum. Therese is recognized for developing teams that produce significant results while maintaining effective board, physician, and staff relationships. She's passionate about coaching to enhance leadership capacity, driving improvements in safety, quality, and affordability. She has been the president and CEO of multiple hospitals and hospital systems, and she has an MBA from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, a master's in nursing from the University of Washington, and her undergraduate degree was from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, Therese is just a, a wealth of knowledge, um, been in hospital systems for uh, decades, and they're, they're, as we know, they're just so complex and, and, and so hard to manage um, from, a, from a financial perspective, but also there's so many moving parts, there's so many employees, and to be good at that job, you have to be a master leader. Uh, Therese is one of those people that has, has done it well and is very well respected throughout the industry. And, uh, you know, finally retired, uh, being proud of what she accomplished and what she did. She is now an executive coach, helping others in their journey and their leadership uh, roles and trying to uh, learn from her experience and also improve our healthcare system. So um, uh, this is a great interview. Teresa is a joy to talk to. And, and as I said earlier, just a wealth of knowledge. So let's jump right in and have a great conversation with Teresa Pandel. Therese, welcome to the program. I'm really uh, excited to have you on today. Thank you, Steve. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I know that you've had this vast experience of being a high-level executive in healthcare systems and very complex systems and so on, but let's start a little bit with your journey. So um, I, I believe you're from Wisconsin, uh, so why don't you kind of just kind of fill us in where you grew up and, and how you got at the, into a healthcare, um, healthcare uh, career. Thank you, Steve. It's an interesting journey and definitely um, very much a Wisconsin gal. Grew up in Milwaukee, um, and I'm a seasoned gal, so I've served in healthcare over four decades. And I went into healthcare with not as much thought as young people do today, or at least my kids did, did chose their profession with a lot more consideration. I went into nursing first because my um, cousin, who's a matriarch of the cousin group, 
uh, oldest cousin and someone I respected. She was a nurse at the burn unit at uh, St. Mary's Milwaukee, and so I followed her there. I also wanted to learn fast. Um, timing is something that I've learned about myself is, is precious, and um, I value it and uh, respect it. So speed in learning was a big deal for me. So I did that, was a nurse at the burn unit for a couple years and pretty quickly learned that I wanted to do more in healthcare, that even in that intensive care burn unit was a little too routine for me. So I went and got my master's in nursing at the University of Washington in Seattle, worked at um, critical care there in ICUs and also burn units there, cardiovascular ICU. Loved the Pacific Northwest. My now husband and I at the time wanted to get away from both of our families. We were both from Milwaukee. He was in family was in the restaurant business and I wanted, we wanted to get away. We wanted to be near a good um, graduate program in nursing and good downhill skiing. So that's All right. the sole that was the selection criterion. Was that, uh, nothing wrong with that? <laughs> yes, close to good downhill skiing. So we were out there a couple of years. He worked at a number of different places, and um, I really enjoyed the Pacific Northwest. And then the family and roots called us back, um, and he owned and ran five restaurants at one time, and we raised four kids. Um, here in the greater Milwaukee area. And I went the clinical route. I was a clinical nurse specialist for critical care first. And then I was one of those sassy critical care nurses that said, you know, I can run this place better than it's being run. And so, so I went and got my MBA and um, just progressively went up the uh, career ladder, was a VP of nursing, chief nursing officer, vice president of operations, chief operating officer, and then a CEO. And I'm one of those people that um, believes you really, it's the people around you that push you up the career ladder. They um, keep saying, you need to do this. You need to lead this. And that's really, mine was much more other than the I can run this place better than it's being run. It was a lot of the people around me kept pushing me up. Yeah, that's great. So. That's awesome. You know, I, I've often wondered being around hospital systems a little bit myself, and and uh, it seems like a lot of the administrative or executive level uh, in healthcare systems do come from the nursing side of things. So um, even more than, than the other uh, disciplines or, or professions in healthcare. So why do you think that is? Is there something in nursing that, that attracts uh, uh, that personality to those uh, more management administrative roles in healthcare systems? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, I see that also. And um, I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, as a clinical nurse specialist, I was responsible for creating change in care protocols, as well as teaching people. But I didn't have any um, direct authority or command control power. I had credibility and expert power and influencing skills. So I think the years that I spent doing that was really very helpful um, because you influence people by um, without command and control. And why nurses? I think you really understand patient care. 
my bias is that clinical people, um, I don't care if it's a physician, a physical therapist, a pharmacist, a nurse, um, with clinical backgrounds should be leading healthcare systems. And why I believe that is that these are clinical enterprises, patient care should be at the center of them. And um, I think you can work with all of the colleagues or associates better in a vision of excellence, a vision of safety and quality and um, financial stability. So that's, that's, and I think that's nurses work with a tremendous number of people and they also get frustrated when things aren't working as well as they could be. So they step up. Yeah, that makes sense. And you, you said that you went on and got your MBA. So, uh, you know, you just explained that having that clinical background is so important. Uh, do you think the MBA education also lifted you to the, to the higher understandings in, in management? Or is it uh, um, just, just a different way to look at things? How would you describe your MBA and how do you think it helped you? I think it helped a lot. Um, in It was a credibility factor. And I think some of the, particularly in the um, late 80s, early 90s, some of my male counterparts started to take me more seriously. Um, if And you, you think back to that era, Steve, I didn't even post a lot of the picture artwork of my kids um, because on the wall until much later just because the culture was way too, was very male dominated and that was frowned upon if I was too, um, too nurturing, right. which is, I'm glad that's gone, <laughs> yeah. but, it was, but it was what we lived through. And I think the MBA, A, it had people take me seriously. B, it was actually very good for me. I'm a pretty left brain person anyway. Um, and it was very good in terms of the whole um, financial analysis, accounting background, um, strategy, scenario development, that kind of thing. Yeah, that was good. And and you know when you look back on those times, did you feel like you were a pioneer, a, a woman in in that uh, ascend up into the ranks of uh, healthcare systems? Uh, did you feel like you were just blazing a trail for everybody, or uh, just tell me what it felt like being a being a, a small minority in that in that big a, uh, arena. Well, the restrooms were never crowded. That was a good thing. <laughs> yeah. The um, there were fr- many a time I was the only female on whatever board meeting or leave, and and sometimes there's one that I laugh about that said, "Dear gentlemen and no, dear gentlemen and Mrs. Pandle," and I thought, why didn't they just write? Why didn't they just write dear board members? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. But, yeah, yeah. But I was fortunate to have a number of um, female leaders also in the greater Milwaukee area that we connected with, um, both in you know in, in women's professional groups, but also because of um, nursing leadership in the Wisconsin Hospital Association, and a number of them also went through the, uh, up to, to your earlier point, up to leadership roles. And we're, we're good friends, professional friends to this day. So yeah, that's great. Um, that you, you learn a lot from each other along a pathway. And I never considered myself a trailblazer. 
I see a number of other women in other industries that really were on a tougher path than in, you know, in, when I went in to nursing, that's where you went, either nursing or education, right? Um, but a couple of my friends that went through the law path um, actually were, I think, significant trailblazers. Well, you know, I just looking and, and talking with you about uh, your experience, I mean, you've had some really interesting uh, leadership positions and like, uh, you know, taking on a multiple physician group, uh, you know, integrating that into systems and aligning independent hospitals. I mean, those are uh, challenging, uh, to say the least, and um, those must have been... Uh, must have been frustrating at some times, a real challenge, and, and maybe rewarding. So share with us a little bit about that experience, trying to bring all these, I would assume at that time, more of male-dominated physician groups to, to work for a common cause. That's true. Um, I have been very blessed in that I have had tremendous physician partners over decades. You know, you're, if you work in a quality organization, I believe quality often begets quality and not 100%, but 90-10 for sure. Um, I had the privilege of working with high quality physicians that we were able to partner to either improve programs, in, improve um, information technology, do many things. Partnerships are challenging also. Um, and the things that I really look for in partners, and I, and I believe that partnership is really required in healthcare these days, just because the hospital delivery side, the margins are being so compressed uh, that we, you need partnerships to do more things that are not necessarily straight hospital health, health system delivery, healthcare delivery. So partnerships for me, uh, you would work and look for people that had really truly shared values, not just lip service to it, but really could speak to what was important. And there was a shared value system and a shared vision. The second thing I'd look for was mutuality. And by that, I mean, were you able to stand in each other's shoes and really understood what it took to make them successful? And the third thing was sustained economics. Whatever we were doing had to be long-term sustainable economically, otherwise it was surely fail. And even given those three things, partnerships take a lot of work. They take compromise. It's just like a marriage. You have to talk through things. You have to understand where the other partner is at and really work to make that partnership work for both partners. So I think that... If I look back at um, a lot of time, that's what I spent doing. I look for quality partners, partners that are dedicated to make sure that the service that you're providing the patients or the communities is outstanding, that it's safe, it's quality, it's efficient. And then um, partners that really could understand where you came from and then arrangements, deals that were sustainable. Yeah, yeah, it's a, definitely a, a, a big, true relationship-building process, that's for sure. So, so, you know, sometimes when you look at bringing groups together, integrating those groups or bringing them into the bigger system and so on, there's always that, um, 
that hope or promise maybe of you know reduced costs and, and improve economies of scale. Yet sometimes you see, I don't know if that's really true. What, what's your feeling on that? Do you really think by bringing uh, people together you can actually reduce overall costs? Or uh, sometimes my experience has been it just means you need bigger systems which often cost more. Yeah, that's a good point, Steve. I, you know, there's, I guess it's almost like a Starling's Law where there's a threshold where they're too big and they're not returning value. When you look at the value, certainly there's economies of scale when you, you know, um, address supply chain costs or IT infrastructure cost or legal cost or um, even education cost. I think all those realms and even some of the some of the things that you really can do better, you can they're scalable, right? You can scale them. What you can't do. Um, I don't think is you the Starling Law piece is you get you get to a point where people are focused on the productivity of the individual clinician, physician, pharmacist, therapist, um, and on one of your other podcasts with uh, Bob and on PE, I thought he he really came at it from a different perspective of private equity, it's the trying to change or increase the productivity of what I think are really sacred moments. And they're the moments of connectedness between a clinician and a patient. And you can't, that's not scalable, <laughs> really. And that's what people keep looking for. On the super large systems, for me, it has to be where is it logical in terms of care coordination? Where does it make sense if there is a academic medical center and then there's a hub of um, smaller hospitals around it, or there's a service line that's able to be specialized? That makes sense. Um, it's when you have these mega systems with, you know, one state over here and one you know, 1,500 or 1,500 miles away, and you're really wondering where is the synergy? And I think the question's out there, and I don't have the answer, where has the local community, where has the value been to that local community? Has care improved? Is it more affordable? Is it more accessible? And quite frankly, is it more altruistic? Um, I, I think altruism is, you know, benevolence and compassionate, compassion, human. And I, I don't think we're seeing that. So have the local caregivers, have the clinicians, the physicians, the staff benefited? Has the local community benefited? And I think there's a big question still out there on that one. You know, I remember uh, the first time I met you, we were having a deep discussion on this kind of similar uh, topic here on a chairlift and beautiful telluride heading up the mountain and i think that i think i remember that you have a real opinion about nonprofits versus profit uh, for-profit hospitals so would you would you care to share with us a little bit about what you think the uh, uh the tension there is i think there is a lot of tension i think the tension towards um and that was a beautiful day and um hope to get out to telluride again soon but the the um 
The tension is on the motivation. And I will be honest, I do have a strong bias to not-for-profit healthcare. I have also have a bias towards faith-based healthcare. And I'll explain that. I think, um, I believe it's really what's the central motivation. Is there a genuine belief in the dignity of life at all ages of life? Is there a respect and a presence and trying to be a healing presence versus a shareholder wealth um, motivation? Now, I think that just because you're faith-based or not-for-profit does not give you a pass on um, being high quality, on being financially efficient, on your on your metrics for safety, timely, timeliness, patient satisfaction. It does not give you a pass. Absolutely the opposite is, is really what that is, that operational excellence, reliability, strong performance, the mission of a faith-based not-for-profit prioritizes the poor and the vulnerable and those that are on the margins of our society. So that's my bias, that that, that should be driven to be expert and excellent in care because of what our purpose is uh, as a not-for-profit or a, or a um, uh, faith-based organization. So that's some of the bias, and, and I've worked in both. Um, and I think you also have seen some of that, those differences. You know, Steve, I sometimes ask people when they say that, why is that important to you? I ask them if they've had the opportunity or had the challenge of placing someone that they've loved in skilled nursing care or a nursing home or assisted living of some sort. And in that journey, did they did they evaluate the for-profit centers versus um, mission-driven, not-for-profit or a faith-based facility? And frequently, those answers are long and um, sometimes quite emotional. But people get it when you give that example. It's it's where where is that core? purpose, I guess. Well, I think in most most things, it's like if you if you took the best of both worlds and, and came to the middle in some way, it would, that would be the, the, the perfect system, right? You, uh, you, you know, you need ro resources. You, you can't, you can't provide a great mission if you don't have the resources. So you need that. On the other hand, if that's the number one goal, then your, as you said, your incentives and, and uh, goals become a little different. So you know, I think there's there's room for both, but uh, as we've both seen throughout our careers, there's probably been abuse of, of one side or lack of, of commitment on the other side, and, and you know, and, and things aren't perfect, as we know. As we know, healthcare is messy, and, and uh, we all wish it was better, uh, but it's hard to come up with the answers of what exactly that looks like. And I think our, our public, you know, um, our fellow Americans need, deserve better, less fragmented care that is um, more affordable and accessible and less fragmented. And um, even though I've served in healthcare for over 40 years, I'm sometimes frustrated about what I still see and think, did I make any difference at all? <laughs> and um, 
that's what you you look back and say we've we've still got a lot of ways to go. The good news is when I look at younger people that are in these leadership roles, they care a lot about what they're trying to achieve. Uh, they they know leadership matters. They know their culture matters in their companies, and they really strive to make these things to make things better. But we do have a long way to go. You know, and sometimes when you look at these big systems, and you were the CEO over a four hospital system, so I mean, mm -hmm. a huge number of employees and people to take care of, and buildings to run, and all this kind of stuff. You know, uh, sometimes you wonder: Do you think sometimes hospital systems? are overmanaged, you know, with too many executives um, in there? Or do you think uh, there, there's just a need for that because of the complexity? Well, it, it really depends. And I've seen a lot fewer. Um, so we, we administrative number of administrative roles have definitely decreased, absolutely decreased. Um, what in terms of leaders like the C-suite, when I went to the Greater Green Bay community, um, there were executives at each hospital, and we became one team with probably one quarter of the C-suite people over those hospitals in the um, 11 years I was there. And I continue to see that, you know, where there can be um, um, administrative leadership changes. What's exploded is the complexity of um, the number of individuals in administrative role to help navigate through complex billing, insurance, legal, um, IT. That actually has grown tremendously. When I started at one of the facilities, we had one attorney. By the time I left, we had six. So you don't turn around without <laughs> some <laughs> legal problems. Well, you brought up some real things there that I definitely want to get into on the IT side and the billing side. But going back to when you said that you took over the four regional hospitals and there was a decrease in the amount of C-suite and upper management people, do you see that as a positive or a negative? I mean, I, you can see the cost reduction positive, uh, but do you think that that made the systems run smoother or, or rockier? Well, I think it made it run smoother, and, you know, people would say that I maybe stretched them. But here's what we needed to do. We were close enough for care to be coordinated in those facilities so that the high-risk care was transferred, patients were transferred to one site. We needed to get on to one IT platform. We needed one single um, hospital-based physician group for ER, for anesthesia, for radiology. Why? We needed standardization of equipment. And the proof in that was when we had a crisis and they had to shut down one hospital because of a water main break, we were able to transfer care and staff to the other location and because there was so much standardization, they were able to function relatively quickly. So, yes, um, I think I think you get to a point where, you know, there again, there's a point where it's um, efficient and you can achieve the goals. 
And then at, at another, you get to a point that you've maxed people out and you've had to um, add back. I will tell you because of the um, unfortunate uh, frequency with which I had to downsize people over my 40 year career, I was very lean on hiring. Why? Because I have a basic value of respect for individuals. I don't want to disrupt their lives. So I was very cautious every time I was ha adding a new um, fixed overhead position that potentially could be downsized if we figured something out um, to be more lean. And you don't do that um, uh, unthoughtfully, right? You do that with a lot of consideration. And you do that to make sure you've been as respectful as that individual to that individual as possible. So I get very frustrated when positions are added and then um, two years later, people have to um, eliminate them because they hadn't really thought futuristically about what the direction was going to obviously be. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's jump in that tech world a little bit. I know that you oversaw some IT transformations in your systems, and and uh, you know, do you think that the move that the government pushed to uh, push physicians and, and big systems into the EHR world versus the EMR world was, was that a good move, and was it worth worth the uh, cost, expense, and uh, turmoil it took to to get there? Um, I think it is a, it was a necessary push and, um, you know, as an aspect of leadership, I put my job on the line, um, at one point because the system was going to go in a different direction with a, another, um, IT vendor and a major physician partner group was already on the other vendor. Well, that sounds pretty obvious that you should be consistent in that, but it wasn't obvious at all. And it was a two year battle and I thankfully had some good physician partners that we ultimately came to the right um, vendor and, and the same vendor. And why do I say it's a necessary thing is, um, look at the frustrations in the past that are just not there any longer in terms of, um, you know, PAC systems or EMRs that weren't there and the, the uh, um, lack of ability to learn from the uh, quality or the errors. And now, um, I've, having retired, um, I saw a physician down in my local community and um, she was concerned about one of my lab values. And I said, well, let me go on my... <laughs> iPhone here and pull up my app from the last five years that value has been trending that way and so obviously it's not a problem and we'll just keep watching it and you know it's that kind of thing Steve I, I think I think I can't even imagine going back to the days of well enough enough health systems have had to do that for a few weeks when then they've had the cybersecurity um, breaches and those are very awful situations. And they basically, you know, slow you down to about 10% of your productivity. And they also remove the, the safety, the reminders, things, the calculation of medications or IV infusions or those kind or reminders or flags. So yes, there's plenty, they can, they have gotten better. They continue to get better. 
they're necessary. Yeah, it's they it's interesting, necessary. and you you may not be aware of this, but in on like in the physical therapy side of things, there's still a pretty fragmented market with a lot of uh, you know standalone clinics or private practices and so on, and and they were not included in that uh, government funding uh, help to transfer to EHR. And so, so many of them are still on their electronic medical record and uh, then unable to communicate, you know, with, a, uh, you know, compatibility to the EHRs, which where all the information is. And so now there's this big, you know, uh, dilemma like, well, you know, how can you, you know, we need to bridge that gap just like the hospitals did, yet the cost is so great, it's, it's, it's hard for somebody that's running a smaller company or a smaller practice to do that and uh, but you can definitely see uh, see that you're missing things if you cannot access that kind of patient information you just described yes and and we as patients we're terrible historians we forget things we get things wrong um, oh yeah I did have that surgery oh yes I am on that medication <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> We're exactly. not very good at it. And so, and I definitely, I don't know what the answer is to it, Steve, but I, I definitely think the barriers to more ability between systems um, needs to be removed because they're, and they, and we have to keep improving them because they have to be less cumbersome for clinicians, uh, much less cumbersome for clinicians, for clinicians, but I do, I do see them as necessary. And then you also mentioned in uh, talking about your position and how things had changed and how much more personnel and costs are related to the billing and collecting side and so on. So, you know, are the third-party payers the real villain in healthcare? Are they? I think, I think everybody's got a little bit of um, um, Downsize. None, not no party in healthcare in is free of blame, right? Nobody's perfect. Um, we have an unnecessarily complex system, and I think in complexity there's waste. Can I get? To, could I ever get to the single root cause of that on my own? No. Um, will I look towards some of the true innovators that are trying to pick apart that? Yes. You know, some of the work that's been done in um, in pharmacy um, in trying to get medications that really are, you know, just have a base cost plus approach instead of some of the outrageous things we see today. Um, I, I think there are innovations that can happen and it'll be at, in parts of it. But as you mentioned earlier, this is an extremely large, complicated system and you keep trying to make improvements in your niche of it or your corner of it and um, can't seem to get your hands around the, the hole. And even when they try to um, fix things as a whole, you end up with very, you know, increased com complexity in terms of regulations that aren't really there to help serve the local community or patient. And now that you're retired and you can look back over your uh, long career and, and all your experiences, are you, uh, do you think we should head towards a single payer system? Do you think we should head towards uh, um, you know, more of this universal health care uh, concept, or do you think we just need to keep uh, 
improving the system that we have? Well, I, um, while retired, I'm still um, doing a little bit of executive coaching, which I really enjoy. Um, it has been in healthcare, um, at least healthcare companies, um, one a product company, another a uh, mostly healthcare delivery. I have to tell you, first of all, I have tremendous empathy for everyone in healthcare delivery leadership right now. I am, it, it was complicated while I was doing it. it the post-COVID world is even more complicated and it takes incredible stamina, perseverance, and um, fortitude to be in those leadership roles yeah, right absolutely. now. Absolutely, yeah, wow. Uh, it really does. Um, as to the whole payer complexity, I'll admit that I get very concerned about um, government control of of healthcare in terms of either financing or uh, care delivery. It, um, you know, just you look at the whole opportunities for multiple streams in, for instance, postal delivery or package delivery, or there's there's more ways than one to beat that. Um, having looked around the world, there's, I do think our, our financing is unnecessarily cumbersome and that we've got to get better at. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's like, you know, at least, you know, cover the, the basics, which I know a lot of the faith-based systems do anyway. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but, um, you know, if we can at least cover everyone and get the uninsured dilemma off the table and then, you know, have different ways, you know, if your employer can afford it or you can afford it, you want to, you know, scale up and, and, and get something different, that's fine, but at least, you know, get everybody covered so that, uh, um, you know, it, it just isn't so costly, you know, maybe that's a pipe dream, but that's, that's, that's what seems no. to make sense to me. And that's, I think, the goal. And also some self-responsibility in that. Um, you know, the um, good work that has been being done with people in terms of your own responsibility to um, be responsible for your health care. Um, and I'm a, I'm a person that believes in less, less medications. <laughs> <laughs> and and more healthy nutrition and um, uh, taking responsibility for your care. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. Um, and have I been blessed healthy? But I do think the universal care should take care of those that are, have not been blessed with good health that are, um, and that we have basics covered. Yeah. You know, and if I can, uh, if I can risk uh, with a HIPAA issue here, um, I'd like <laughs> to ask you that uh, you um, were inside hospitals all these years, and just recently you um, you you were a patient in in mm -hmm. one of those systems and, and and had a procedure done. So, what was your experience as a patient, and did you come out of that pleased, or did you come out of it frustrated that it could have been better? Um. Actually pleased. Now I did have a um, a total knee replacement from 
probably years of skiing and water skiing and a lot of things like that, and a family that has genetically bad joints. But the um, I, I went to a facility that you know, at the in in middle of my career, I had difficulty with, which was a specialty orthopedic hospital. Um, I did partner with one of those hospitals, and care was excellent. My um, physical therapist is extremely experienced. I have a bias that um, a surgeon's experience and a PT's experience matter a lot, and. I interviewed a number of surgeons in terms of what their um, infection rates were, what was their quality, what was the functionality of their patients. And then I got a lot of recommendations on the physical therapist. And this individual had um, practiced in Aspen for a decade, so knew knees very well. And that's been, that's been great. On the experience as a patient, even in a specialty hospital, nothing is perfect. So out of probably good operational care, good admission, good surgery, all of those things, all those processes, there was one individual who was rather snarky. And you thought, <laughs> yeah. You've always got one. And that's my, part of my compassion and empathy for the leadership is you're almost perfect, but you just you still spin on that one individual. Yeah, so. that's uh, it makes yeah, like you said, it only takes one sometimes. So that's uh, that's always uh, from a management or leadership uh, perspective. Uh, you know, having the right people in place so you minimize those ones that show up is definitely a goal. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So. Help us help some of us understand, because I always have this question. You mentioned it earlier that hospitals have such a, a small margin to work on. Yet it seems like, and even in the nonprofits, there's always this major multi-million dollar expansion project going on in hospitals. So I'm always wondering, how can they do that when they're just struggling by, but yet they always have these big expansion pro- programs going? So you're the insider. Tell us why that why that's able to happen. Well, I do wonder sometimes if we haven't expanded our facility footprint almost too much, almost as if banks did with all of their satellites and now they've shrunk them back because what I'm seeing is a lot of micro hospitals being put up everywhere. Um, you know, they, the capital funding for those investments are over a long uh, over a long period of time their return and developing relationships that reach into communities and reach physicians in referral areas is pretty important so that's been some of that facility expanse expansion I also know that our patient population, if they have an option of or a choice of where to go, where are they choosing, right? If How many women do you know that were in the childbearing years would look at um, the physician, but also where they wanted to deliver? Does the, how, how up to date is the facility? Do they have um, in-room, in-room laboring and delivery? Do they have an NICU? So all of that does our expectations. We want to um, 
pay for a lower cost vehicle, but we want to drive and have our care at the highest cost place. So I, I do think our customer expectations are pretty high and they, they drive that, particularly those that are sophisticated patients that can choose and have health plan coverage that allows them that benefit. Yeah. Now, I also understand that you uh, were involved in a, in a campaign to, to raise money and provide some services for the community. And uh, Aaron Rodgers was the, uh, was the campaign uh, <laughs> spokesperson or chair, whatever you want to call it. What was it like working with Aaron Rodgers? Oh, my goodness. Well, he's had an interesting journey in Green Bay. I must say that the 11 years that we lived in Green Bay, I definitely appreciated how well the Packers were playing. Not as they were playing the last few weeks. <laughs> yeah. but, but we were we um we benefited a lot from um the team that was there at the time. And the current team is definitely a young team and I have hope for them. Um and I have a lot of I have a number of friends on uh leadership within the Packers team and on their um board and executive committee and I know they're working hard to make sure that that uh, is a successful team and obviously if you're a leader in Green Bay you are definitely a shareholder in Green Bay yes that's right. it's, it's, it's one of the expectations so I thought Aaron one of one of the things I appreciated about Aaron Rodgers is he understood St. Francis um, our system in Green Bay was a Franciscan-based system. He was extremely respectful of our uh, sisters, and he called himself a St. Francis fan. He um, he didn't have the best parting of the ways, but that's a complicated situation. Uh, but but when he was with us, he did well. I, I disagreed with him vehemently on the whole immunization stance, and obviously as a healthcare leader and healthcare organization, you, we needed to follow what the science said. So. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I also know that you've given back to your community a lot and you were, um, uh, you chaired the Wisconsin hospital association, uh, board of directors. So, uh, tell us, uh, why you did that and, and what do you think you got out of that personally from a leadership perspective? Well, one of the things I believe is that leaders do need to give um, back to their communities. And um, the Wisconsin Hospital Association um, is led by some very talented people who I appreciated being around. You know, I'm, I'm one of those constantly curious people, Steve, that and loves learning from smart people. And I think the benefit of sitting around the table with competitors but really driving for good reimbursement for the poor and the vulnerable, that is the, that's the key driver in making sure that the regulations are manageable and that we address things like physician shortage or we address things like nursing or um, pharmacy shortages, those kinds of things. Um, I found very, very rewarding, um, a good use of uh, time and very good resources for other levels within our, our organization in terms of quality programs or um, education programs or um, the finance team, um, financial team, billing and revenue cycle team. So I really thought 
it was important time to give back. I have tremendous respect for a lot of the people involved. And um, I know that what their motivation was, was try to make sure healthcare works for the state of Wisconsin. You know, talking about providers, you know, with the constant pressure to be more productive and to be more efficient, and then you've got, uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, the pandemic was just miserable, uh, you know, as far as the pressures and what healthcare workers had to go through during that such, you know, uh, time where there was so much unknown and so much, you know, insecurity about where we're headed. Do you think we're in a crisis in this company with... Um, in this country with uh, uh, having enough, are enough people going into health care to be providers? Or is it kind of thought of now like, man, I don't know if I want to do that. It seems like, you know, everywhere you go, there's uh, physician shortages, physical therapy shortages. We can't find enough nurses. Um, well, what's your what's your take on that? Are we in trouble or is it just a, a blip in the screen and we're going to hopefully uh, get over it? Well, while there have been cycles of um, nursing shortages or clinician shortages, I think this one is different with the aging of the population in the country, with a number of people, of physicians in particular, that, in particular who would have practiced longer had they not had um, the two years of COVID and the exhaustion that that, that has created. Um, I think we probably would have gotten three to five years more out of uh, many of them, particularly in the primary care world. And um, they've had enough. And I don't blame them. They're, you know, your life is short and you, you need to balance, make decisions for your family and balance that. Um, I don't think it's a, I don't think this is a, the same cycles as the past. I think it's worse. I think the physician shortage is real. And I think in um, the people shortages and the hospital side for the clinicians, because it's hard. Look at all the training to be a PT. Look at all the training to be a nurse. Look at all the training to be a, a pharmacist um, or a physician. It's real. I was involved with the, um, um, uh, university medical college expansion to Green Bay, um, and I really appreciated what they were trying to do was to take a what was a four year program into a three year um, medical school program with the same uh, board passage rates and et cetera by decreasing decreasing vacation time or a summer time off and helping medical students get through that program in three years, solid three years, instead of four, but that saves on their education time, lets them get into a residency factor faster, blah, blah, blah. So I think there are some creative things done, but I think we have to make the work environment as supported as possible for the clinicians that are in the care delivery side. Um, because it's a tough side. It really is. Yeah. And I, I think uh, since you and I have been around for a while, you know, I, I think it's also interesting of the type of uh, person that the uh, uh, medical school and, and some of the other caregivers attract now. I think it's changed. I think it's, uh, I think it is bringing in people that are really, really interested in caring for others in their first uh, 
you know, the first thing they're interested in is, uh, you know, what can I do to help my fellow man and society as opposed to maybe status and, and other things that it was maybe back in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it is still, um, I was having this conversation recently with someone and it it is, I do, I hear a lot of physicians say that they would not encourage their children to go into medicine. Um, and a same for people that would not encourage people to go into nursing. I have a very different view of it. Um, I think these are still very rewarding uh, careers. Are they challenging? Absolutely. Is the education requirements incredibly stiff? Yes. Are the education requirements incredibly stiff? Yes. But there is a certain piece of uh, personal reward that um, balances your uh, your life. So I would never regret the years that I spent at the bedside and the lessons I learned from people at um, very traumatic moments in their life. It gives you a better, I think for me, it helped me give me a more balanced view of, of life. And um, as you mentioned, from all things that I've done in my life, I've accomplished a lot, but I think I was able to keep a, um, a grounded head about it because of those bedside experiences. I mean, who else is a 20 years old and talking to an 80 year old um, about who they want you to say hello to in heaven <laughs> as they <laughs> yeah. are dying? Um, you know, so there are just some priceless, priceless experiences when you're young. And I think that's what draws people into healthcare. And because I'm now very seasoned and old, I, I'm going to need my health care for me. I come myself and my my husband. I hope that there are people that are still driven um, to really find um, kind of their mission and purpose in life in in health in healthcare delivery. Yeah, it's not hard to find meaning and purpose, you know, when you're helping people you know, improve their lives and, and, and try and live a better life in that sense. So that's that's definitely the uh, positive part of it for sure. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in thinking about our discussion today in anticipation of it, uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think we definitely need to get on the show today? Well, um, I know you and I both um, coach people. And um, what's your driver for coaching, why do you coach? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I I, I think that as we mature and we um, we find out what uh, what we what we've accomplished and what what we've done in life, uh, you know, I, I, I try and look at you know what what are my gifts and 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 what's in my wheelhouse and and for me personally, it was leadership and and leadership development in the sense that. You know, I looked at one of my main goals as a leader of, of a company is to build other leaders and help people learn and grow. And I so enjoyed that that, uh, you know, when it came time to retire from the from the, the big job, it was like, okay, what do I really enjoy and what do I think I'm good at? And, and that's why I decided to be an executive coach because I think I can help people um, understand that role, uh, uh, understand how to communicate with others and, and, and bring along teams. And so for me personally, that was just something that I really, really enjoyed and I, I thought I could help people doing. So that's why I became an executive coach. And, and it's, it's been great because that, it is something that I enjoy doing every day. 
Yeah, very, very similar. And one of my mentors once said um, that um, you have to, in your, when you're in leadership, you are a coach. And when you're in leadership, you need a coach. And um, so it's true. true because you, you mm. need someone to, to talk through issues with and help you really isolate your options and figure yeah. things out. Yeah, as soon as you think you have all the answers, you're in deep trouble, right? <laughs> uh, Very true. Very true. Well, Teresa, at this point in the interview, I always ask my guests the same common question. And that question is, in relation to leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you could leave us with today? Hmm. Care enough about someone to give them the feedback that will help them be better. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, Teresa, this has been a, a real pleasure for me talking with you, and um, I think back fondly on the time we met skiing and, and uh, Telluride, and uh, hopefully we can do that again sometime. Uh, but you, uh, your experience is vast, as, as we've discussed, and uh, you've, you've done a lot in your life and given back a lot to your community. So um, it's great that our mutual friends uh, got us together and we met, and I really enjoyed this uh, discussion, and I think we've learned a lot from you today. So thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. And thanks, Steve. I enjoy your um, podcast while I'm out walking around. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's great. I'm glad you do. Well, uh, keep uh, keep doing what your physical therapist tells you to do now. They, they, they're they good for that and uh, uh, heal well. And uh, I'm sure that knee is going to be ready to hit the slopes before too long. All right. Take care. Take thanks. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.